Hi everyone, I'm Alice Flanagan and welcome to my podcast, Philosophy Rekindled. In this podcast, we are spotlighting philosophical and metaphysical publications from the late 1800s and early 1900s. And what we will do is we will focus on one book at a time, where my guest panellists and I will discuss the concepts and ideas put forward in each chapter of the book, with a view of opening up a conversation which we hope that you as listeners will want to continue with your other like-minded friends. And I will point out that whilst we have a point of view on what we think the author is saying, we're expressing our opinions only. So we hope that this provides a platform for you as the listener to form your own opinions and challenge the validity of the ideas for yourself. We all know that the subjects of philosophy and metaphysics can be quite a heavy read at times and sometimes a real mind bender. So I've designed the podcast to bring the concepts and ideas from these books to life in an easy to digest format. To do this, as the books are out of copyright, I will provide an audio version of each chapter where I read the chapter out loud, and this will be separate to the discussion part of the podcast where the panellists and I discuss the concepts and ideas. As for my experience of reading out loud, well, it does only extend as far as reading bedtime stories to my children, and I will note that I don't have a sound studio, so please indulge me a little if I mispronounce a word here and there. Uh, also, the birds in my backyard get a little vocal from time to time. And also, my furry friends who often sit with me while I make these recordings, if they make their presence known with the odd little meow here and there. But I think you will find that the reading is clear and audible and easy on the ear, so I hope you enjoy. This year, my focus book is the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Espensky. This book was translated from the Russian into the English in 1920, but it was originally published in Russian in 1912. But because it was translated into English in 1920 and we're now in 2020, I thought it was fitting that on the 100-year anniversary that this book is brought back into focus. I was first introduced to this book in the 1970s by my father, who had a keen interest in metaphysics, amongst other things. I didn't actually read it at the time. Uh, I could excuse it with being a slow reader and shying away from anything too heavy. But in 2017, I was drawn to this book once again, and from the first page, I was hooked. Aspensky opened my mind to concepts that I had never considered before, but were really right in front of me, concepts that I wonder now, how didn't I see that? I'd be reading this book on the bus on the way to work and be so absorbed in it that inadvertently from time to time I'd let out an audible oh my god so excited about seeing something for the first time the wonderment of understanding something that I hadn't really looked at with that giant spotlight before but uh, don't be fooled into thinking that you know just because I love the book that this would blind me or my panelists to its flaws and like all books that explore the unexplainable or the inexplicable, Espensky does have his moments where, in my and my panellists' opinions, he could have explained things better. And we're hoping with our podcast that we will work those things through and call out where we think that he's left something out or should have explained something differently. And we ask you, too, to be the judge of what you think are his methods of delivery and what you think the understanding he's trying to portray is. I will concede that for me, the whole book is magnificent and one of the best books I've ever read. But it's not a book that I read from cover to cover in one go. I've gone back over paragraphs. I've put it down for a while and picked it up again. It's, it is a heavy read. 
but it is really worth finishing from cover to cover, even if it takes you a couple of years, even if you pick it up and read a paragraph at a time, even if you don't understand what he's saying, skip over it, get to the next bit, because he does repeat his concepts. He does go over them and explain them in different ways. And the first reading through, you'll get something from it. The second reading through, you'll get some more from it. And the third reading and so forth, you'll just keep getting, it's a gift that keeps on giving really. So be mindful. It's not a quick read, but a well worth it read. Okay, so having said that, what is the book about? Well, in essence, from my point of view, it's about consciousness and what the world becomes with the expansion of consciousness. But I'm going to quote the bullet points listed on the title page of Aspensky's book to give you a flavour of what he believes he's written about. So here they are. Number one, the mystery of time and space. Number two, shadows and reality. Number three, occultism and love. Number four, animated nature. Number five, voices of the stones. Number six, mathematics of the infinite. And bear in mind, Aspensky was a mathematician. Number seven, the logic of ecstasy. Number eight, mystical theosophy. Number nine, cosmic consciousness. Number 10, the new morality. And number 12, birth of the superman. Got all that? Yes, I know. It's a lot to take in with just bullet points. And to be fair, I feel that the introduction to the book, which was written by Claude Brangden, who was one of the co-translators of the book from Russian into English, along with Nicholas Bisarabov, explains what is in store for you in the book much more clearly than I have just articulated now. So that reading follows this brief introduction. So before I get on to the reading of the introduction, I do have a website, philosophyrekindled.com, where you can read more about me and my panellists. There is also a link to the book on the public domain, archive.org, where you can download a free version of the book in many formats. And if you do find that downloading the book from archive.org is helpful to you and you would like to send some spandoolies their way, they do have a donate button at the top of their website. And back to my website, philosophyrekindle.com. As we proceed through the chapters of the books, I will be adding extra information onto those particular chapter pages. So it's worth checking out from time to time. I really look forward to your company with Tertium Organum. And as noted in the introduction, Aspensky is inviting you to come reason together. And so too, my panellists and I are also inviting you to come reason together. So here, as promised, is the reading of the introduction to the book Tertium Organum by P.D. Aspensky. Enjoy. Tertium Organum by P.D. Aspensky. Read by Alice Flanagan. Introduction to the English Translation. In the spring of 1918, a young Russian, Nicholas Basarabov, appeared at my door bearing in his hand Tertium Organum, a precious gift to the mind and to the spirit, but shrouded in the sevenfold veil of the, to me, incomprehensible Russian tongue. With ardent enthusiasm and admirable patience, the young man outlined to me the nature and content of the book. I took fire at once, for I saw that the author, Ospensky, was the Columbus of that uncharted ocean of thought in which I and others had indeed adventured, haunted by dreams of rich argosies from virgin continents. Some authors gain only readers, others, more fortunate, win disciples, and Aspensky is of this latter class. Basarabov was a disciple, and I found that I had become one without knowing it. 
So in the spirit of true discipleship, we set to work to make tertium organum known to the English-speaking world. The method we adopted was for him to make a somewhat rigidly literal translation, into which I then infused only so much of literary form as seemed necessary for lucidity and ease. Faithfulness to the original was the aim held piously by both of us from beginning to end. The reader has the right to know something of our fitness for this service. For my own less arduous and important part in the translation, I can only say that Despensky's thought is so curiously parallel to the movement of my own mind as expressed in four-dimensional vistas that I could be accused of plagiarism by anyone unaware of the fact that my book was published before I had read his. Mr. Basaraboff studied mechanical engineering at the Petrograd Polytechnic Institute, whose student body is composed of the honour men of various Russian schools. While a student, his absorption in mathematics and mechanics had been complete, but the reading of Tertium Organum so awakened his interest in general science, philosophy and mysticism that he embarked upon a collateral course of study that made him familiar with practically every phase of thought in its broad outlines dealt with by Aspensky in his book. His knowledge of English, though it does not extend to all the niceties of construction and literary expression, is sufficient for him to read the language with perfect understanding and to express himself with great precision, whilst his vocabulary, as so often is the case with foreigners who have learned English out of books, is larger than that of the average American university graduate. As for Espensky himself, he is an accomplished mathematician, magister of pure mathematics, and he holds the position as instructor of mathematics at the Petrograd Institute of Engineers of Ways of Communication, one of the oldest of the Russian technical schools. He is by now 38 years old, has travelled extensively, visiting England, Italy, Egypt and India. He has contributed to mathematical textbooks and is the author of several works other than Tertium Organum. This later is now in the second edition in Russian. The present translation was made from this second edition, the date on the title page being 1916. In naming his book, Tertium Organum, Ospensky reveals at a stroke that astounding audacity which characterises his thought throughout. An audacity which we are accustomed to associate with the Russian mind in all its phases. Such a title says in effect, here is a book which will reorganise all knowledge. The Organum of Aristotle formulated the laws under which the subject thinks. The Novum Organum of Bacon, the laws under which the object may be known. Behold, I give you a third organ, which shall guide and govern human thought henceforth. How passing strange in this era of negative thinking, of timid philosophising, does such a challenge sound, and yet it has the echo in it of something heard before. What but the title of another volume, Hinton's A New Era of Thought. Spensky's Tertium Organum and Hinton's A New Era of Thought present substantially the same philosophy, though Hinton's book only sketchily. Arrived at by the same route, mathematics. Here is food for thought. In the words of Philip Henry Wynne, mathematics possesses the most potent and perfect symbolism the intellect knows. This symbolism has offered for generations certain concepts, of which hyperdimensionality is only one, whose naming and envisagement of the human intellect is perhaps its loftiest achievement. Mathematics presents the highest certitudes known to the intellect and is becoming more and more the final arbitrator and interpreter in physics, chemistry and astronomy. Like Aaron's rod, it threatens to swallow all the knowledges as fast as they assume organised form. 
Mathematics has already taken possession of great provinces of logic and psychology. Will it embrace ethics, religion and philosophy? In Tertium Organum, mathematics enters and pervades the field of philosophy, but so adroitly, so silently as it were, that one hardly knows that it is there. It dwells more in Ospensky's method than in his matter, because, for the most part, the mathematical ideas necessary for an understanding of his thesis are such that any intelligent high school student can comprehend. The author puts to himself and to the reader certain questions, propounds certain problems which have baffled the human mind for thousands of years. The problems of space, time, motion, causality, of free will and determination. And he deals with them according to the mathematical method. That is all. He has sensed the truth that the problem of mathematics is the problem of the world order, and as such must deal with every aspect of human life. Mathematics is a terrible word for those whose taste and training have led them into other fields, so lest the non-mathematical reader should be turned back at the very threshold, deciding too hastily that the book is not for him, let me dwell rather on its richly humanistic aspect. To such as ask no key to the enigmas of the world, but only some light to live by, some mitigation of the daily grind, some glimpse of some more enlightened polity than that which rules the world today this book should have an appeal. The author has thrown overboard all the jargon of all the schools. He uses the language of common sense and of every day. His illustrations and figures of speech are homely, taken from the life of every day. He simply says to the reader, come let us reason together, and leads him away from the haunted jungle of philosophical systems and metaphysical theories, out into the light of day, there to contemplate and to endeavour to understand those primal mysteries which puzzle the mind of a child or of a savage, no less than that of the sophisticated and super-subtle ponderer on the enigmas of the world. Not that Ospensky is a trafficker in the obvious, far from it. Those who know most, think most, feel most, will get the most out of this book. But a great sanity pervades his pages and he never leads away into the labyrinths where guide and follower alike lose their way and fail to come to any end. Leaving the average reader out of account for the moment, there are certain others whom the book shall particularly interest, if only in the way of repulsion. First of all come the mathematicians and the theoretical physicists, for they already, without knowing it, have invaded that dark, backward and abyss of time, which Ospensky in philosophy lights up, and are by way of losing themselves there. That is to say, in certain of their calculations, they are employing four mutually interchangeable coordinates, three of space and one of time. In other words, they use time as though it were a dimension of space. Spensky tells them the reason that they are able to do this. Time is the fourth dimension of space, imperfectly sensed, apprehended by consciousness successfully and thereby creating the temporal illusion. Moreover, mathematicians are perforce concerning themselves with magnitudes to which the ordinary logic no longer applies. Ospensky presents a new logic, the logic of intuition, removing at a stroke all the nightmare aspects, the preposterous paradoxes of the new mathematics, which by reason of its extraordinary development has shattered the old logic as a growing oak shatters the containing jar. It is from the philosophic camp, no doubt, that the book will receive its sharpest criticism on account of the author's laissez-majesté towards so many of the crowded kings of philosophic thought, 
and his devastating assault on positivism, that inevitable byproduct of our materialistic way of looking at the world. His attempt to prove the Kantian problem, subjectivity of space and time, doubtless will be acutely challenged and with some chance of success because the two chapters devoted to this are the least convincing of the book. But no one here too has ever attempted to absolutely demonstrate or successfully controvert the staggering proposition advanced by Kant regarding space and time as forms of consciousness. Whatever the verdict of the philosophical pundits of the day and hour, whether favourable or otherwise, Aspensky is sure to have a place in the hierarchy of philosophers, for he has essayed to solve the most profound problems of human existence by the aid of the binocular vision of a born mathematician and an intuitive mystic. Starting from the irreducible minimum of knowledge, he has carried philosophy into regions not hitherto explored. To persons of an artistic or devotional bent, the book will be as water in the desert, there, always at a disadvantage among the purely practical-minded, by whom they are outnumbered twenty to one, will find in Aspensky a champion whose weapon is mathematical certitude, the very thing by which the practical-minded swear. These, their enemies, he puts to rout, holds up to ridicule. He applauds their efforts to escape into the world of the wondrous, and justifies the faith that is in them. But most of all, Aspensky will be loved by all true lovers for his chapter on the subject of love. We have had Schopenhauer on love and Freud on love, but what dusty answers do they give to the soul of a lover? Edward Carpenter comes much nearer to the mark, but Aspensky penetrates it to its very centre. It is because our loves are so dampened by our egotisms, our cynicisms and our cowardices that we rot and smoulder instead of bursting into purifying flame. Just as Goethe's Werther, with its sex sentimentality, is said to have provoked an epidemic, so may Tertium Organum, which restores love to that high heaven from whence descend every beauty and benison, inaugurate a renaissance of love and joy. From one point of view, this is a terrible book. There is a revolution in it, a revolution of the very poles of thought. Some it will rob of their dearest illusions. It will cut the very ground from beneath their feet it will consign them to the abyss. It is a great destroyer of complacency. Yes, this is a dangerous book, but then life is like that. It is beyond the province of this introduction either to outline the Aspenskian philosophy at any length or to discuss it critically, but some slight indication of its drift may be of assistance to the reader. The book may have appropriately been called A Study of Consciousness, for Aspensky comes early to the conclusion that all other methods of approach to an understanding of the enigmas of the world are vain. Chapters 1 to 7 inclusive deal with the problem of the world order by the objective method. The author erects an elaborate scaffolding for his future edifice, and after it has served its purpose, throws it down. Aware of the deficiencies of the objective method, and having made the reader conscious of them too, he suddenly alters the system of attack. From chapters 8 onwards, he undertakes a study of the world order from the standpoint of subjectivity, of consciousness. By a method both ingenious and new, he correlates the different grades of consciousness observable in nature, those of vegetable, animal, animal and man, with the space sense, showing that as consciousness changes and develops, the sense of space changes and develops too. That is to say, the dimensionality of the world depends on the development of consciousness, Man, having reached the third stage in that development, has sensed a three-dimensional space, 
and for no other reason. Spensky concludes that nothing except consciousness unfolds, develops, and as there appears to be no limit to this development, he conceives of space as a multidimensional mirror of consciousness and of time and motion as illusion. What appears to be time and motion being in reality only the movement of consciousness upon a higher space. The problem of superior states of consciousness, in which there shall be time no longer, is thus directly opened up, and in discussing their nature and method of attainment, he quotes freely from the rich literature of mysticism. Instead of attempting to rationalise these higher states of consciousness, as some authors do, he applies to them the logic of intuition, tertium organum, paradoxical from the standpoint of ordinary reason, but true in relation to the noumenal world. Joseph Conrad and Ford Maddox Hofer once wrote a novel called The Inheritors, and by this they meant the people of the fourth dimension. Though there is small resemblance between Ospensky's Superman and theirs, it is his idea also that those of this world who succeed in developing higher dimensional or cosmic consciousness will indeed inherit, will control and regulate human affairs by reason of their superior wisdom and power. In this, and in this alone, dwells the salvation of the world. His superman is far removed from the blonde beast of Nietzsche. It is the just man-made perfect of the evangelist. His struggle for mastery between the blind and unconscious forces of materialism on one hand and the spiritually illumined on the other is already upon us and all conflicts between nations, people and classes must now be interpreted in terms of this greater warfare between two races of men in which the superior minority will either conquer or disappear. These people of the fourth dimension are in the world, but not of it. Their range is far wider than this slum of space. In them dormant faculties are alert, like birds of the air, their fitting symbol. They are at home in realms which others cannot enter, even though already there. Nor are these heavenly eagles confined to the narrow prison of the breast. Their bodies are as tools which they may take up or lay aside at will. This phenomenal world, which seems so real, is to them as insubstantial as the image of a landscape in a lake. Such is the Aspenskian Superman. The entire book is founded upon a new generalisation, new that is, in philosophy, but already familiar to mathematicians and theoretical physicists. This generalisation involves startling and revolutionary ideas in regard to space, time and motion, far removed from those of Euclidean geometry and classical physics. Aspensky handles these new ideas in an absolutely original way, making them the basis of an entire philosophy of life. To the timid and pure-blind, this philosophy will be nothing short of terrifying. But to the clear-eyed and steadfast watcher, shipwrecked on the shoal of time, these vistas, overflowing with beauty, strangeness, doubt, terror and divinity, will be more welcome than anything in life. Fear not the new generalisation. Aspensky's clearness of thought is mirrored in a corresponding clarity of expression, with every aid to understanding of which his office of teacher of mathematics has given him command. He sometimes repeats the difficult and important passages in an altered form of words. He uses short sentences and short paragraphs, and italicizes significant phrases and significant words. He defines where definition is needed and suggests collateral trains of thought, with a skill which makes the reader who is intuitive a creator on his own account. 
Schopenhauer has said that it is always a sign of genius to treat difficult matters simply, as it is a sign of dullness to make simple matters appear recondite. Ospensky exhibits this order of genius, and that other mentioned by Schopenhauer, which consists in choosing always the apt illustration and illuminating simile. The translators have tried to be rigidly true to the Russian original, as has been said, and they have been at great pains to verify every English quotation so far as has been possible. The only liberty they have taken with the text consists in the omission of a brief personal reference which might possibly give offence. Rochester, New York, August 1, 1919. Claude Brangdon. This is the end of the introduction.